directly into the microphone. <laughs> Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Um, so a lot of stuff going on in the world. Obviously, we'll be talking about Israel-Palestine. Um, I got a bunch of different angles on that. We have an MSNB, excuse me, an MSNBC host who actually told the truth on this issue, and it was phenomenal. We also have um, Joe Biden phones it in on the issue. I have a lot to say about that. 
we have video of the media building being bombed by Israel. It's really bad. And then later on in the show today, we'll talk about uh, Liz Cheney. She responded to getting ousted um, from GOP leadership. We actually have Mayor Pete went on CNBC, and the CNBC host is so dumb, Mayor Pete ran circles around him. So we'll talk about that. There's a conservative who is offended by people who choose to wear masks of their own volition. I have a lot to say about that one as well. Um, And then there is a lot of stuff about the economy. You have both CNN and Fox News basically arguing that we should pay workers less. So they're, they're berating workers to get back to work for shitty money. And we have multiple networks that did that. And then um, later on, what happens when you give homeless people thousands of dollars? Ted Cruz gets owned by a Democratic senator, and um, confused Trump voters have no clue why they like him. I can't wait to show you that video. That's, that one's from Vice. So anyway, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And um, like I said, we will do that with Israel and Palestine. Here we go. There is continued fighting happening in Israel-Palestine. I actually don't know if you can say fighting is a sufficient enough term Uh, It feels like it's something else entirely. Uh, We could talk about that as we go along here. But um, Gaza is getting absolutely obliterated by Israel. And um, you have some of the images and videos that are coming out of there are absolutely gut-wrenching. So the big thing that happened two or three days ago is that Israel bombed a media building to the ground. So they claim, oh, it's because Hamas is in there. Now, one of the media outlets that was in this building, doesn't exist anymore, so we can't say is in the building, was in the building, um, was the Associated Press. And the Associated Press released a statement that said, um, we've been in this building for 15 years. There's no Hamas in there. We would never put our people in any kind of danger or jeopardy. And so Israel better show whatever their evidence is right now, because it looks like you just bombed a media building because you wanted to bomb a media building, perhaps because you don't like the critical coverage of Israel that's coming out from these media buildings. So you have um, the Associated Press is one of the outlets in there. You had Al Jazeera is another one of the outlets in there. Um, So what you're going to see here is the owner of the building was in contact with the IDF and was basically begging, hey, don't bomb the building yet. At least let my guys go in there and get their cameras and get their recording equipment. And you can see he's begging. He's already at the point where he's given up hope to have them not bomb the building. He's like, okay, I get it. You're going to bomb the building. Just give us 10 minutes. And, you know, the IDF person on the other line, on the other end of the line is basically like, no, we've already given you an hour. Nobody goes back in that building. We're bombing it now. And then you're going to see what happens. I'll read this to you. We just we just want four people, and they're wearing press vests. They're not going to get weapons. 
They're going to get their cameras and their work gear. These guys were in the broad, in the middle of a live broadcast. They spent the day going to film at the hospital. After the bombing killed after 10 people this morning. These are the people I'm talking about. There's no one here that wants any trouble. We just want 10 minutes. Ask your supervisor. Nothing's going to happen. Listen. No one is allowed to go back in the building. No one. We respect your opinion. We're not saying we're going to go in without your permission. Just give us 10 minutes. There will be no 10 minutes. No one is allowed to enter the building. We already gave you an hour to evacuate. This is for them, not for me. This is their life, not mine. In the time we've been arguing, for the last 10 minutes, if you just let us go and pick up their gear and come back, listen, we're not crying about the building. It's fine. You can do whatever you want. Our life's work is all gone. Our memories, our lives, you've just wasted. You really want me saying all this on camera? I don't want to say this stuff. Do whatever you want. I'm going to hang up now. And you can do whatever you want. There is a God that is bigger than you. Listen, praise the Prophet. God praises upon the Prophet Muhammad. Are there people in the tower? No, no, there's no one inside. There's no one? No, there's no one. Okay. And now they're showing the bombing. This is just video of the bombing. It's hard to believe anything the IDF says at all because they've lied every step of the way. So let me give you some more information here. Um, Another thing that they did is they bombed the roads that lead to Al-Shifa Hospital. And in that bombing, they killed 33 in the process, including eight children. They also targeted a Doctors Without Borders clinic. So that's more. We also know that um, Gaza's top neurologist, Dr. Moen Al-Alul, was killed. The head of coronavirus response at Gaza's biggest hospital, Dr. Um, Ayman Abu Alouf, he was killed. Um, a psychologist and social worker, Raja Abu Al-Uf, as well as her children. Um, she was killed. So the, the new numbers that we're getting are terrible, and the targets are mostly civilian targets. So also last night at about 1 a.m., bombs were raining down on a residential area. Um, this was all over Twitter in real time as it was happening. So... The death toll from that attack is now 42, including 10 children and 16 women. 50 more were wounded. Um, You have two prominent doctors were among the dead. And um, the total death toll now in Gaza since Israel started bombing last Monday uh, is now 192 people, including 58 children and 34 women. And more than 1,200 people have been injured. 
Now, um, you might be thinking, well, what are, the, what are the casualties like on the other side of this? And the answer is <clears throat> 10. Total of 10 people have been killed on the Israeli side. I don't know the breakdown. I know there were at least two civilians, but it was 10 people. I don't know who the other eight were. I don't know if they were IDF people. I don't know if they were civilians. But uh, you have 10 deaths to 192, including 58 children and 34 women. So there are more than five times, almost six times the number of children died in Gaza as the total number of people died in Israel. And again, more than 1,200 have been injured. So, well, now you might be asking yourself, well, what the hell is going on with the U.S. response? Unfortunately, the answer is disastrous. Biden has been in regular contact with Bibi Netanyahu. Biden has made a point of never calling for even a ceasefire. There are, I believe, just over 20 Democratic senators who are now calling for a ceasefire, led by um, John Ossoff, among a few others. Biden didn't even call for a ceasefire. And in fact, we got the news. This is just after we got the news that Israel was bombing a residential area in Gaza and killing civilians. Biden approved $735 million more in weapon sales to Israel. After we already knew hey, this is mostly civilian targets, this is hospitals, this is roads leading to the hospital, doctors are dying, children are dying. Biden's response to that is, okay, they want more weapons. I'm going to send them $735 million more in weapons. The United States has also blocked three attempts from the UN, three attempts from the UN to bring about a ceasefire and stop the carnage. So that is currently where we are. Um, in fact, early on, when there were the first calls for a ceasefire were happening, the response from the Israeli government was basically, we're not interested in that. So they're admitting, hey, we're, we are bombing. It is aggressive. It is offensive. And we're going to keep doing it. And we're not interested in a ceasefire. Now, throughout this entire ordeal, one of the things you hear all the time, in fact, it's the go-to, like, regurgitated, thoughtless platitude that American officials spew out and that uh, Israeli officials vomit out. It's Israel has a right to defend itself. Israel has a right to defend itself. Israel has a right to defend itself. Well, very clearly, if you're bombing hospitals, if you're killing doctors, if you're killing women and children, if you're bombing residential areas, you're not defending yourself. And I'll go a step further. Israel always has Iron Dome, which I'm not kidding about this. It sounds like it, uh, this is hyperbolic because it's almost – Sounds almost too good to be true, right? But 90% of Hamas's shitty rockets get knocked out of the sky instantaneously because of Iron Dome. Iron Dome is a missile defense system that as soon as it detects an enemy missile incoming, it fires into gear and it intercepts it and it blows it up in midair. That's probably the main reason why casualties are so insanely low on the Israeli side. So if Israel says, hey, we have a right to defend ourselves, the response is, you have Iron Dome. You are already defending yourself. So all of the bombing missions in Gaza, where you're killing civilians at an incredibly high clip, all of that, all of that is illegal. And it's war crimes. And it's you going on the offense. Every nation now, except 
the U.S. and Israel is saying, whoa, hold, oh, come on now. You got to pump your brakes. You got to do a ceasefire. You got to stop this bombing mission. Look at all the civilian casualties. You hit hospitals. They don't care, and they're going to keep going. And then, of course, the most obnoxious and annoying part of it all is that they play the victim as they do it. God, nothing's more annoying than that. And the Israeli government does it so much it's laughable, you know, and the U.S. feeds right into it. Always playing the victim even as they're massacring civilians relentlessly. That's what's happening. Now, listen, this perhaps is the, is the unpopular thing to say in some circles. I can't imagine why. But uh, what's Occam's razor if a government bombs a media building? What's Occam's razor? What's the most likely explanation as to why a government would bomb a media building? Very simple. They don't want that reporting to continue. They don't want those facts to keep coming out. That's Occam's razor. That's Occam's razor. And again, the AP themselves, who are in the building, said, there's no Hamas here. There's no Hamas here. So they wanted the reporting coming out of Gaza on what they're doing to stop. In the same way that you had a Palestinian go on some mainstream media networks in the U.S., on CNN and MSNBC, he told the truth about Israel. He was asked if he condemns violent rioting from Palestinians, and his response was, um, you know, do you condemn them trying to kick me and my family out of our homes against, illegally against international law? He told the truth, and then the next day he was dragged out of his neighborhood by the IDF. And they did they also, somebody said they grabbed one of his sisters or something. The same way that the IDF responded to that, that's how they're responding to the media telling the truth on this. They just bombed the building. And the head of the AP came out and said, this sets us back. Thankfully, our people are okay, but now they need to set up shop somewhere else, I think at the AFP building, and it's going to take longer, and now we're behind, and we can't get all the facts out there. That's why Israel did it. That's why Israel did it. They bombed the media building because they wanted to bomb the media building. They wanted to limit their capacity to get the truth out there. That's why they did it. And I can't imagine anybody being surprised by that, but some people will be surprised by that. But the fact of the matter is, shouldn't be a surprise when you also see this incredibly high rate of civilian deaths. Because, again, they don't care. It's not like every time it's a whoopsie. They don't care. You think they accidentally bombed uh, the Doctors Without Borders clinic? You think they accidentally bombed the roads leading to the main hospital? You think that was an accident? I have a bridge to sell you if you think that's an accident. So anyway, listen, don't get it twisted. These are war crimes on top of war crimes on top of war crimes. And the U.S. is showing how complicit it is in ethnic cleansing, because that's what's happening. It was a slow motion ethnic cleansing, and now they sped it up a little bit. So this, is, uh, this rips the mask off of all the fucking stupid rhetoric of, we believe in democracy and freedom and human rights and... That's what we, us and our allies push for. No, it's not. No, it's not. The U.S. is an imperialist government. Um, you have Israel is our imperialist ally. And we basically let them do whatever the hell they want to do to the Palestinians um, because they are our buddy in crime. That's what it is. 
And Biden even admitted, he said he gave a speech on the floor of the Senate years ago where he basically said, if we didn't have an Israel, the U.S. would have to invent an Israel because they help our interests so much in that Middle East region. So they'll just look the other way as war crimes continue to get committed. The U.S. government will do that. Israel will continue carrying them out while they play the victim. And we all sit here and watch it and feel totally hopeless. I wish I had a a positive thing to end this segment with, but I don't. But I don't. This is as bad as it gets. It doesn't appear like it's going to stop. And um, we already know that the casualties are incredibly lopsided, and so many civilians, innocent people, children, women are getting killed. Um, But when the dust settles, it's going to be even worse than you think it is in real time, because it's always like that. It was like that in 2014 with Protective Edge. It's going to be like that this time. And um, I don't know what to say to end this segment other than the U.S. is complicit in war crimes and the Israeli government is carrying out war crimes and they belong in The Hague. Okay, next. Got to stick with this issue. Got a few more. Joe Biden woke up from his nap, or at least half woke up from his nap, in order to uh, answer some stuff about Israel and what they're doing to Gaza. And um, this is the statement that he sent out after Israel already bombed a media building. Today, the president spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, reaffirmed his strong support for Israel's right to defend itself against rocket attacks from Hamas and other terrorist groups in Gaza, and condemned these indiscriminate attacks on Israel, attacks against Israel. This was after Israel bombed a media building that had the AP and Al Jazeera in there. So it was after they did it. Now, Israel argued, hey, the only reason we're bombing that building is because we know Hamas is in there. So Ken Klippenstein reached out to the Biden administration and asked them, have they shown you evidence of that? Their response initially was, no comment. And then a day later, they said, on the record, actually, no, they showed us no evidence that Hamas was in the building. So in other words, the U.S. government is just going to take Israel at their word that, hey, the reason we had to bomb this media building is because Hamas is in there. That's astounding. If any other government did that and they weren't our ally, we'd be calling for regime change. We'd call them an enemy of the free press. That's what we would do. But instead, it's unequivocal support. Now, the support actually goes further. Uh, The support is a lot worse because... We just got news that the Biden administration approved a $735 million million weapon sale to Israel. Excuse me. Let me try that again. The Biden administration just approved a $735 million weapon sale to Israel in the middle of this carnage, in the middle of them bombing civilians, in the middle of them taking out residential buildings. So not only is it no condemnation and total agreement and totally backing them up in statements, It's also arming them in the middle of their offensive. 
Now, lest you think I'm being unfair with my description, let's, uh, let me give you the numbers yet again. On the Israeli side, 10 people have died. 10 people. On the Palestinian side, um, the total number of dead at this point is 192. That's continuing to rise, by the way. That includes 58 children and 34 women. And 1,200 people have been injured. And last night, there was bombing of a residential area. Um, in that attack specifically, 42 people died, including 10 children and 16 women. Um, and again, just to give you a sense of the kinds of targets here, a number of these people were doctors. They bombed a Doctors Without Borders clinic. They bombed the roads leading to Al-Shifa Hospital, which killed 33, including eight children. They... Um, among the dead is Gaza's top neurologist, the head of the coronavirus response at Gaza's biggest hospital, and a psychologist and social worker named Raja Abu Alouf. So this is what's going on, and the U.S. is completely supporting it, no questions asked. And the best we have is a little over 20 Democrats in the Senate saying, let's have a ceasefire. That's it. Let's have a ceasefire, which goes right back status quo to where we were before. That's it. That's as far as you're going to go. And then Bernie made a comment like, we need to take a hard look at the over $3 billion, nearly $4 billion in military aid we give them every year. No, Bernie, we don't have to take a hard look at it. We need to cut it off immediately. We need to sanction Israel. How about that? How about that? Cut off all of the subsidies we give them, all of the money we give them, the nearly $4 billion a year, and then you sanction them and then you officially condemn them. How about that? That would be an actual response. But we're nowhere near that. Again, the best we're getting is some Democrats calling for a ceasefire when Israel's openly saying, we don't want a ceasefire. That's the best we're getting. And remember, Joe Biden had the nerve to lie, by the way, about what happened during the civil rights movement and the anti-apartheid era. And he said, I remember when I went to South Africa and I was arrested trying to visit Nelson Mandela. It was a lie, but this was him trying to portray himself as a civil rights champion. By the way, you know, really whitewashing his actual past because there's, you know, a lot of evidence of him working with um, segregationists back when he first got to D.C., in fact, I think he gave the eulogy at one of their funerals. I don't remember who it was, was it Strom Thurmond or something like that? But he was against desegregated busing, Joe Biden was. So he loves to portray himself as some sort of hero, some sort of civil rights champion, some sort of person who's always on the right side of history, when his record shows the exact opposite. And now we're seeing the exact same thing here. Aiding and abetting war crimes. He's aiding and abetting ethnic cleansing. He's sitting back as Israel bombs media buildings and hospitals and roads to hospitals and women and children. We have no moral authority left. We have none. None. Did you know even George H.W. Bush stood up to the Israelis once? Every modern president in the modern era has not. George H.W. Bush stood up to them once. I forget the details of the story. I remember reading about it in The Intercept, but he basically said, if you do the thing you say you're going to do, I think it had to do with the illegal settlements and expanding them. If you do that, we're just going to cut off your money. So don't do it. Don't, don't try me. I'm your daddy, bitch. 
That's what H.W. Bush did. Since then, every president has been a colossal cuck on the issue and just lets Israel do whatever the fuck they want. And then again, they have the nerve to turn around and do this human rights kabuki theater where they pretend like, oh, the United States and all of our allies are the people in the world who care about democracy and freedom and human rights. Even though Saudi Arabia is one of our top allies, Israel is one of our top allies, so we have you know, an autocratic theocracy that beheads people in the street. That's Saudi Arabia. We have um, an ethnic pretends like it's a democracy on the Israeli side. It's an apartheid state. It's just that anybody who follows this stuff closely knows that everything we've been told is complete bullshit. And I would almost respect it more if it was just, if it was nakedly evil. I would almost respect that more. There's, there's something that's an extra level, an extra layer of evil when you pretend like you're some sort of hero and you stand for all the right things as you sign off on war crimes. So anyway, that's what, uh, that's what Biden is doing. And this strikes me as an instance where he's exactly like Trump, 100% like Trump. You know, I don't see any difference between how Biden's acted here and how Trump would have acted. I see no difference at all. None. You know, Trump basically gave Israel everything they wanted. And in response, they showered him with, you know, affection and pretended like he's the best president ever and probably put his face on some shit. You know, moved, um, moved the embassy to Jerusalem. So he gave them whatever they wanted. This is Biden doing the same thing, giving them whatever they want. That, that's, all, that's what it is. And so you have Democrats and Republicans are exactly the same on this issue. There's some issues where there's minor differences, but they're close. This is one where they're exactly the same as far as I can tell. So uh, this is disgusting. The good news is that the younger generation sees right through all of this, all of this. The era of, like, complete and utter, you know, subservience, to Israel, it's going away with the younger generation for sure. And don't get it twisted. A lot of the reason why it is the way it is is not just ideological now, but it's also because of the Israel lobby. Keep it real. There's, you know, and it's the same thing with the Saudi lobby, for example. Saudis get basically whatever they want. They got away with killing Jamal Khashoggi. Why? Because they pay the politicians and they have the lobbyists and they're in on the corrupt game. And this is the same thing with the Israel lobby. But I do think that in time, that's going to change because you can't fool people with this. You really can't fool people with this. And I think younger Americans are totally on to this complete and utter ruse. So what Biden should be doing is not rearming them, condemning them vociferously, cutting off the $4 billion in aid, and threatening to sanction them if they don't immediately stop and um, reverse the trend. That's how you would actually crack down, but he's not. He's signing off on it, and by the way, what you're doing is giving a green light to everybody in this scenario. International law doesn't matter. Human rights don't matter. That, that's the message that you're sending to the rest of the world, that you're just going to sort of sit back, do nothing, and even cheer it on as atrocities are carried out, war crimes are carried out. Again, we don't even have, there's not a shred of credibility left with the U.S. argument is like, we're the world police and 
you know, we believe in freedom and human rights and justice and democracy. There's not a shred of credibility left with that. So save the flowery language and shove it up your ass where it belongs. Okay. Next. All right, now we'll go to Ali Velshi, who's doing a great job, who did a really good job with this. Usually, the media does a terrible job with uh, a variety of issues, if not all issues. Well, this is a very, very rare instance where an MSNBC host does a superb job, a superb job. Now, I think he's originally from Canada, which might help explain why his, uh, his views are what they are. There's a little bit more of a, an objective and honest and balanced view of the Israeli-Palestinian situation from folks abroad. I don't know why that is, but it tends to be the case. Um, so here you have MSNBC host Ali Velshi telling the truth about Israel and Palestine. And this is a real bright spot among a whole bunch of terrible coverage. Let's take a look. Now let's make one thing clear. Israel has a right to exist and to defend itself. That is an indisputable fact. But so do Palestinians, and that's a fact that's often ignored. Palestinians are, at best, third-class citizens in the nation of their birth. The idea that it's even remotely controversial to call what Israel has imposed on Palestinians a form of apartheid is laughable. One look at a current map of Israel, Gaza, and the occupied territories conjures up only one other example apartheid-era South Africa. The Israeli government, on an ongoing basis, declares parcels of land on which Palestinians live to be either of military or archaeological importance, causing residents to be evicted. Sometimes there's a court case, and almost always the Palestinians lose. Yet months or weeks later, that same important land suddenly becomes home to a brand new Israeli settlement. As more and more Jewish settlers take over land on which Arabs live, the occupied West Bank becomes de facto more Israeli and, in the explicit hopes of the Israeli government, more Jewish. This is a long-standing attempt and a deliberate attempt to force Arabs who have lived in that land sometimes for hundreds of years out to attempt to dilute their presence because to have Arabs as full participants is, in the opinion of the Israeli government and their courts, diluting Israel. Just prior to the pandemic, I toured many of the contested areas and homes from which Arabs are being pushed out, both in Israel proper and in the occupied territories. Palestinians don't control the important parts of their lives. Palestinian families are refused permits to build or renovate their homes. When they connect their homes to the municipal water supply, Israeli soldiers sometimes cut the pipes. When they attempt to harness solar energy because their homes are not on the grid, Israeli soldiers literally come and remove solar panels from their homes. I spent an hour and a half traveling alongside an elderly Palestinian woman who was being transferred between three ambulances from Gaza to the no-man's land in between and then into Israel to get cancer treatment. Three ambulances over the course of one mile, more than an hour to cross the border. That's how Gazans live, without medical treatment because Israel prevents it, without electricity much of the time because Israel prevents it without the ability to fish in the Mediterranean Ocean because Israel prevents it, without an airport or a seaport because Israel prevents it. Like Israelis, Palestinians also have a right to exist and to defend themselves, but there is no one willing to help them do that, not the Israeli courts and not the U.S. government. 
What the U.S. also shares with Israel is the belief that Hamas, the political party that governs Gaza, is a terrorist organization that calls for the destruction of Israel. Hamas is supported by the majority of Palestinians in Gaza. Hamas may not be in the best long-term interests of the Gazans, but peace hasn't really worked out for them. Faced with an Israeli government which pens them into what has been called the world's largest open-air prison, they have chosen a government that most of us wouldn't prefer, one that is not given to negotiation and moderation and respect for its neighbor. Israel needs a new approach to the Palestinians, and America needs a new approach to Israel. After more than seven decades of not just being deprived of land from which they were evicted, Palestinian frustration runs deep. It may be worth going deeper than what you may hear inside your bubble and understanding the depth to which the Palestinian people are subject to apartheid in their own land, deprived of basic necessities, and subject to relentless civil rights violations. This is not a secret. It's out there for you to see. You just have to look for it. I, I really think that was a that was a superb job. Um, you never get that perspective in mainstream media, or you very rarely get it. I mean, to be fair, there's been more examples now of just objective descriptions of what's happening currently. So they'll bring up the civilians on the Palestinian side being way above and beyond that on the Israeli side. And so the objective picture itself tells its own story that's overwhelming. But this is the first time you get the context and the history and the perspective in a deeper sense and on a deeper level. And I think Ali Velshi does a, a fantastic job. Um, so, you know, I had this realization recently. We, I talked about it. We had Rania Kalik on Crystal Kyle Friends to talk about Israel and Palestine. And, um, you know, it occurred to me that I've always supported a two-state solution, but it occurred to me that that was a ruse. I supported a two-state solution because I thought it was real. But it wasn't real. The whole two-state two solution dialogue and the peace process, all that does is buy time while Israel does a slow-moving ethnic cleansing and continues to steal more and more Palestinian land. And so it's a fantasy. It's never going to happen. The two-state solution is this bullshit non-solution that's trotted out there to keep everybody busy talking about it while Israel continues to evict Palestinians from their land and steal it and build more illegal settlements against international law. So then, then the question becomes, okay, well, then what the fuck are we supposed to do? Well, the answer is a lot more simple than you think. It's simple in some ways. It's incredibly difficult in other ways. But the answer is one democratic state in the region. One democratic state in the region. Everybody has equal rights. Everybody gets an equal say. And you have a democratic government. So in other words, you get rid of the apartheid-like system. Now, the reason they don't want to do this is because Jews think, oh, my God, we'll be outnumbered by Palestinians or by Arabs, and we can't have that because then there's going to be no more Jewish states. And my response to that is very simple. I'm against ethno-states, and I'm against theocratic states in principle. I get it. The Jews have had a history of being treated terribly, and they were persecuted viciously, no doubt about it. Anti-Semitism is real, and we need to be vigilant against it at all times. But that doesn't give you the green light to exempt yourself from this basic principle of democracy being good and freedom being good and the idea of diversity and multiculturalism being the norm, being the duh position. 
if you say, yes, let's have, you know, a Jewish state, let's have a theocratic ethnostate, then why can't black people say, well, let's create an all-black nation, let's do black nationalism? Why can't white people say, well, we want an only white state? Why can't other religions say, well, we want an exclusive state to us? And there are a lot of, you know, Islamic states that exist in the world. I don't agree with that. I don't think they should be Islamic states. I think they should be democratic and open and pluralistic and multicultural. Multicultural. Everybody gets an equal say. Everybody gets an equal voice. Everybody just gives up on the principle of equal rights and democracy in this one example, in this one case of Israel. I don't agree with that. And so... You could say, oh, my God, it's going to be messy if we move to a system like that. I'm sure it is. But the most messy thing you can imagine is happening right now. It's a slow-moving ethnic cleansing. There are more and more evictions from Palestinians on their land, on their territory. It's been happening nonstop. It's against international law. Everybody agrees. Every neutral arbiter and objective viewer agrees. So when Ali Velshi says, well, Israel has a right to exist and defend itself, it has a right to exist because, you know, you had the UN with the decision in the late 1940s, but everything that happened since then, even the expansion in 1967, even that was technically against international law. And so a point that a lot of people are making is like, actually, no, if you're the occupier and you're the one that's committing the war crimes and you're the one that's committing the atrocities, maybe you don't have that. You know, would people say that in apartheid South Africa? Would people say that in apartheid South Africa? Would they say, hey, the white folks have a right to defend themselves. I think the most common response would be, wait, but they're the ones who are doing the aggression. They're the ones who are enforcing a brutal regime. So do they, really? Maybe, maybe the solution is actually incredibly simple in theory and just difficult to carry out in practice. But that is the only solution. And so that's what we have to do. That's what we have to work for. And this is what a lot, most Palestinian activists on the ground are actually calling for. They want to have a one-state solution, have one democratic state in the region. And, of course, it's going to be messy and it's going to take a long time and it's going to be, you know, the numbers are going to reveal, paint a, a disturbing picture of all the wealth and power and influence being concentrated in the hands of, you know, one segment of the population and not in other segments of the population, but this is the only answer, and this is the only way forward, because obviously the two-state solution is a lie. So there needs to be some sort of truth and reconciliation um, process, and you need to move towards one state that's a democratic state where everybody gets equal rights. And if you oppose that, I don't know how you can, to be honest. I really don't know how you can can't get my mind around opposing that when it's very clear now that the two-state solution is a fraud, that it's, there, there's no actual two-state solution. It just doesn't exist anymore. And the more, every year that goes by, Israel takes more and more land. So you want to do, give, give the Palestinians two blocks and say, that's your state? Nonsense. It's utter nonsense. Really what Israel wants is continue stealing the land until it gets to the point where um, – the Palestinians just are absorbed by the surrounding states, basically. Push them out of their land and let them get absorbed by the surrounding states. Slow-moving ethnic cleansing is what it is. So I think Ali Velshi did a phenomenal job there. Um, he called Palestinians third-class citizens in their nation of birth. Um, 
look, the international community is 100% right about this. It's only the U.S. and it's only Israel and some marginal exceptions of our puppet countries um, who say, everything that's going on here is fine. So we know what this solution is. It's just a matter of implementing it. But we're so far from that because the U.S. is on the side of Israel. And what a, a U.S. president who actually cared about human rights and justice and peace, what an, a good U.S. president would do is immediately cut off all arms going to Israel, immediately cut off every subsidy going to Israel, and sanction Israel. And basically say, hey, we could have a good relationship or we could have a bad relationship. It's on you. But if we're going to have a good relationship, um, we're going to move towards one democratic state. And you're not going to keep violating international law. You're not going to keep committing war crimes. You're not going to keep killing innocent civilians. You're not going to keep evicting people from their land. It's not going to happen. We're not going to sit by and allow that. But we don't have that. We have the opposite. We have Joe Biden, and we have Democrats and Republicans in this country generally are in favor of aiding and abetting a slow-motion ethnic cleansing and a gross violation of international law. And so everything Ali Velshi said here was true, but you don't hear it often. You don't hear this side often in the U.S. And so I'm glad that he said what he said. Okay, next. Do one more, then I'll take a quick break. Liz Cheney responded to getting ousted as a GOP leader. Um, She spoke to Chris Wallace. Let's take a look, and then we'll talk about it. House Republicans voted this week to remove Liz Cheney as conference chair for her refusal to stop attacking former President Trump. But she says it won't stop her from running for re-election or from fighting for the future of the GOP. And joining us now from Cheyenne, Wyoming, Congresswoman Cheney. Congresswoman, I want to start with the decision by uh, the House Republican Caucus to remove you this week. Uh, We had Congressman Jim Banks, the head of the Republican Study Committee, on the show last Sunday. And here's what he said about this. Take a look. We shouldn't be talking about Liz Cheney. We should be talking about pushing back against the radical Biden agenda. And this is all a distraction from our ability to be able to do that. Banks was saying, with Republicans so close to winning back the House in the midterms next year, that the focus should be on what unites the Republican Party, which is opposition to the Biden agenda, and not picking fights with a a former president who's now living in Mar-a-Lago near Palm Beach. What's wrong with that thinking? Well, I think it is absolutely the case that uh, we have to have the strongest position possible going forward so we can take back the House, the Senate, and the White House. Uh, the, The issue is that, you know, we cannot do that if we are embracing the big lie, if we are embracing what what President Trump, former President Trump, continues to say on a nearly daily basis, which is claims that the election was stolen, using the same language he used that he knows provoked violence on January 6th. In order for us to be in the strongest possible position to be able to prevail, to be able to defeat the ideas that we see coming from the other side that are really bad for the country, uh, we have to be a party that's based on a foundation of truth. And uh, I'm, I'm not willing to be uh, complicit uh, or silent in the face of those lies coming from uh, President Trump. Congresswoman, uh, I want to talk about you finally. You were on track to perhaps someday 
be the Speaker of the House. Now that's over. You've been removed from leadership. Uh, your re-election next year in Wyoming is at least in question. I guess the question I have for you is, are you prepared to make this politically the hill you're prepared to die on? Look, I, I cannot imagine a more important issue than whether or not the Republican Party is going to be a party that embraces and defends the rule of law and the Constitution. Uh, and I am firmly committed to uh, being part of leading this party back to a place where we believe and, and advocate on, the, on behalf of policies and substance, where we lay out an agenda that helps to attract voters back to the party, uh, where we move away from uh, this loyalty that so many, uh, particularly in our House leadership now, uh, have apparently pledged to uh, Donald Trump, uh, the president who provoked the right. attack on the Capitol and who refused to send help. So I think that, that what we have seen over the course of the last couple of weeks is really, you know, the opening salvo in, in what is a battle for the soul of the Republican Party, a battle for the soul of our democracy. And I intend to, to play a very big role in that, to do everything I can uh, to help ensure that we can restore our party. Congresswoman, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Always good to talk with you. Here's what's so funny about this. In all these interviews, she's actually not talking about her policy positions, which are grotesque, and by the way, over 90% in agreement with Trump. She's not talking about those. She's just talking about, like, look, the guy's wrong. He says he won the election. He didn't win the election. He says there's evidence it was stolen. There's no evidence it was stolen. We had over 60 courts rule on this. Let's stop being ridiculous. Let's stop being dumb. Let's move along here. So everything she's saying in these interviews is true, and she is getting obliterated online. In fact, she was so obliterated that Fox News, after they posted this clip, they had to turn the comments off. So this was overwhelmingly all the Republicans online are like, eh, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, downvote, 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 downvote. I'm with Trump, Trump, MAGA 2024. She was getting obliterated in the comment section. So here's my hope. Here's my hope. Let us, um, you know, talk about an ideal future. Let us dream together. I hope that Trump's most hardcore supporters, it makes up a, a smaller and smaller percentage of the country and of the Republican Party. And to be fair, so far, that's exactly what's happening. As time has gone by, he's become more and more irrelevant. He's not even on Twitter anymore. So now he's down to, you know, whatever the approval rating is, 32%, 35%, something like that. My hope is that goes down and goes down and goes down. And then it bottoms out at maybe 25%. If you have 25% of the Republican Party, that's still 100% Trump train, um, well, then you have another 25% that's not. And so then you actually get a Republican civil war. That would be ideal. Listen, keep it real. You want them at each other's throats. You do. You want them at each other's throats. You want them fractured and factionalized. You want them not united. And um, if that's the case, they'll tear each other apart, and Democrats will waltz to victory. Now, there is a Democratic civil war, of course, too, and I'm a longtime proponent of that, and I want my side of that civil war to win, don't get it twisted, but the fact of the matter is right now, this Republican civil war 
is a little bit of wishful thinking. Like the media wants there to be a Republican civil war, but the fact of the matter is it's like 80% on Trump's side, 20% on anybody else's side, on the establishment Republican side. But as time goes by, the reality might be it's only like 25% of the party that loves Trump, but they're just a very vocal 25%. And that's why all these videos get downvoted and they're the most politically engaged and politically active and the loudest and the most aggressive. But the fact of the matter is, there might be like basically like a silent, either, either a silent half or silent majority that's actually done and over Trump. And that's kind of what you want. And you want there to be, you know, their heads butting. Now, the saddest part is this, though. There actually is no difference in terms of policy. So leave it to the Republicans to have a civil war and it have nothing to do with policy. And it's all about culture. It really is like a lot more about the culture war and stuff. Um, so leave it to them to have the most substanceless civil war of all time. But they might have a civil war and that would be wonderful and that would be great. But as of right now, it's completely a media creation. It's, you know. Liz Cheney trying to make herself a thing, getting obliterated by her own party. And remember, again, this isn't her talking about her policy issues where she's wrong about everything. But, you know, her number one thing is she's for endless war. But this is her telling the truth about the election, and that's getting her destroyed. So, I mean, the, the, the watching the trajectory of that party has been something else. It really has been. And I'm very curious to see what happens in 2024. You know, I mean, my original prediction is Trump runs, he's going to win. He's going to win the Republican primary for sure. But I don't know. I don't know. And maybe there's some other figure that comes along and, you know, is able to consolidate a silent anti-Trump movement in that party. Because usually what happens is after somebody loses, the country is generally like, okay, you're a loser. We're done with you, you know? But Trump has sort of bucked that trend a little bit, but now he is slipping slowly but surely in the polls. But I think more of that might be because he's off Twitter. But either way, it might happen. And let's sort of root for it to happen. I want to see this Republican civil war. Um, the fact that Liz Cheney could say obvious things like she did here and still get you know, destroyed is sort of hilarious to me because – at this point, trying to reason with the hardcore Trump people is just, you're wasting your breath. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your breath. Obviously, if they didn't listen to reason at any point in the four years he was president, why would they listen to it now? So, as Noam Chomsky says, at this point, they're barely a political party. The Republican Party is barely a political party. Or, I think he says they're not even a political party. They're like a fringe, cult, ragtag group of extremists, of like, Civil War reenactors and... Um, you know, flat earthers and, <laughs> all right, maybe not flat earthers, but you get the point. Okay, let me take a quick break. When we come back, um, CNBC host gets schooled by Mayor Pete, which is the most embarrassing thing ever, and a conservative takes on the number one issue in America, masks and people who freely decide to wear them. Stay right there, guys.
right, guys. Welcome back. Here we go. Can't believe that uh, we're going to do a story that portrays Mayor Pete in a non-negative light. Anybody who watches this show on a regular basis knows the fact that uh, I think Mayor Pete is a little careerist weasel ladder climber. Um, and he's one of the most soulless members of the Democratic Party. He's a vapid narcissist. I can't say enough negative things about him. Now, having said that, um, there are some people in the world who are worse than Mayor Pete in different ways. Um, For example, every single host on any of the financial news channels, like CNBC, so Mayor Pete goes on CNBC to talk about some of Biden's plans, including his, uh, his infrastructure plan. And this host thinks he's got Mayor Pete in a gotcha moment, but watch what happens. You ever hear the expression, all, all politics are local, Mr. Secretary? So you're the transportation secretary now. So we're proposing a, a usage for the term infrastructure that Republicans would say includes every wish list from the Democratic Party going back 50 years. As a transportation secretary, don't, do you now, and be honest with me, do you now just wish that we look directly at what your domain is? Roads, bridges, airports, throw in, you know, some uh, Internet and, and Wi-Fi. Let's do seven, eight hundred billion. Do it with Republicans. Get it done. Give me my infrastructure, transportation, and, and, and do not try to do everything at once. Tell me that you believe that, but I know you won't. <laughs> I mean, look, as, as the org chart goes, I'm, I'm the roads and bridges guy, right? The transportation part is the piece that I work on. But when I think about why roads and bridges matter, the, the, the fundamental reason they matter is they make it possible for Americans to live lives of their choosing, right? Whether there's a good road to get you where you're going is going to help determine whether you can go to school, whether you can go to work, whether you can see your family. And I think the same thing is also true of the other forms, the broader forms of infrastructure we're talking about. They're all part of the foundation that make it possible for us to live well. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in a semantic or philosophical argument uh, over what to call something if it's a good policy. Oh, right? uh, you're describing these as democratic items, but these are things the American people want. No, Mr. Secretary, Secretary I, you, might, you might as well just tell me, you know, you need those roads to drive to free college and free child care, and therefore I want to build them so that, I mean, come on. absolutely do have the money. In fact, Biden made a point of trying to make these revenue neutral. So in other words, you offset all of the spending with tax increases. Now, the tax increases happen to be something that these CNBC goons also complain about, but it makes no sense to complain about that because if you care about it being revenue neutral, okay, well, Biden looked out for that. 
raising the corporate tax rate, raising taxes on everybody who makes over $400,000 a year. That's how you pay for it. Raising the capital gains rate, that's how you pay for it. So they want to have their cake and eat it too and criticize the plans, but then also criticize the tax increases. You can't criticize the spending, but then turn around and criticize the pay for for the spending. That makes no sense. But it's CNBC, and they don't have to make sense. So, yeah, and furthermore, when they say, we don't have the money, what does that mean? What does that mean? We, uh, even if we did deficit spend, we still have the money. You have the money if you deficit spend. You have the money if you offset it with revenue increases through tax increases. You, we have the money. It's just this lazy thing that they fall back on when they don't agree with the policy. And so CNBC idiots don't agree with free child care and free college. And they're just like, no, nah, we don't have the money. Have they ever said we don't have the money when it comes to Wall Street bailouts? No. In fact, they supported the Wall Street bailouts. They've never said we don't have the money when it comes to endless wars or giving Israel nearly $4 billion every single year for them to murder Palestinian babies. Never said it. They never said it because they agree with those policies. So this is a rare instance where, um, where Mayor Pete is correct. Uh, and I like how Joe's argument is effectively, come on, Joe Kiernan, the CNBC host, when Mayor Pete makes his point, he's like, but God, you might as well say we need roads and bridges to get to the free child care in college. I mean, come on. Come on is not a point. Come on is not an argument. Come on is what you say when pe- you're sitting around people who already agree with you and you don't have to make an argument. Well, guess what? We don't agree with you. In fact, we think you're kind of dumb. So um, now let's get to the, the bigger issue here is this. Why did Democrats include in the original proposal, things that are arguably not infrastructure in the infrastructure bill? The answer is very simple. You only get like two or three cracks at reconciliation, which is the process where 51 votes is all you need to pass legislation in the Senate. Regular order, you need 60 or more votes, which is not happening. It's not possible. So since you only get two or three cracks at reconciliation, you have to get through all of your stuff through reconciliation in only two or three cracks. That's why you have these bills that have so many things in it. Because I'd like to have a system where we vote one by one on all these things. That would be great. But we don't have that system because we have the filibuster, which makes it impossible to pass anything through regular order. So you're left with no choice but to jam a bunch of shit into the few packages that you're going to try to pass. And so that's why you have free college and, uh, you know, free childcare and things that are arguably not infrastructure in the infrastructure deal. That's why you have packaging together of a variety of issues all in one, because they have no choice but to do that if they actually want to try to get their agenda passed. But, of course, the idiots on CNBC, they spend, you know, days arguing, well, free college and free child care isn't really infrastructure, so how could you put that in the infrastructure bill? What does it even matter if, ultimately, the American people want these things? It doesn't really matter. Again, I would prefer a system where you vote issue by issue and you do it where all you need is 51 votes in order to win. I I would prefer that. But we don't have that system. And so since we don't have that system, would I prefer Biden does nothing and gets nothing done? Or would I prefer him bundle a bunch of shit together and try to get it all through reconciliation with the two or three shots at it? I prefer that. God, they're so stupid. When Mayor Pete can run circles around you on your network... To say you're bad at your job isn't nearly harsh enough. Okay. All right, let me blow my nose and then we'll talk about 
um, Max. All right, here we go. So um, I don't know how many of you guys have been paying attention to this, but the CDC and the FDA and various government agencies have been updating um, the rules on mask wearing. Um, You know, so originally they were basically like, wear masks everywhere just to be safe. Then eventually they acknowledge, like, okay, if you're outside, um, you don't really need to wear masks. If you're outside in a reasonable distance from people, you don't need to wear masks. COVID doesn't really spread outside. Hardly ever does. Maybe it does if you're literally right on top of somebody, but it's rare. Um, and then finally they came to the position of, like, okay, if you've been vaccinated, you don't even really need to wear masks inside. Now, of course, they still leave it up to private businesses to determine if the individual businesses want to have mask mandates, but they're saying, you know, generally speaking, inside, if you're vaccinated, you're safe, you don't really need to wear a mask. Okay, so I think it's fair to criticize the various government agencies because they were kind of clearly making stuff up as they went along and they weren't really following the signs because they didn't really know the signs. They didn't really know what was happening. And so people who question these authorities, I don't blame them at all. I mean, Fauci at one point said, you know, you don't need to wear masks early on in this pandemic. Now, the reason he was saying that is because he was lying to protect frontline workers to try to get more masks for the frontline workers. But he should have just said, don't buy them because we need them for the frontline workers. He didn't say that. He lied and said masks don't really work. Okay. So I trust, I understand why people would be skeptical of the authorities. I'm skeptical of the authorities. I try to follow the science as best I can uh, and almost weigh what the authorities say, but follow it I try to follow it even closer than what the authorities are saying, if that makes sense. So anyway, um, now the conservatives, now that uh, the government agencies decided if you're vaccinated, you don't really need to wear it inside, um, conservatives are aggressively coming out to, I guess, do their version of an end zone dance. So there's this guy, Matt Walsh, who's a conservative commentator, and here's what he says. Wearing a mask when it is not medically necessary is grotesque and unhuman an attack on society itself. It feeds paranoia and fear. You are treating air like it is toxic and other humans like they are nothing but vessels of disease. It is disgraceful, arrogant, and offensive. So now you have the anti-mask brigade is becoming militant in their anti-maskness. That's what we're currently watching. Look at the language he's using. So the government admits, like, okay, vaccinated people don't need to wear it inside. And this is what this guy's reaction is. is. Wearing, a mask is not medic- wearing a mask when it's not medically necessary is grotesque, unhuman, an attack on society itself. It feeds paranoia and fear. And you're treating air like it's toxic and other humans like they're nothing but vessels of disease. It is disgraceful, arrogant, and offensive. Offensive. These are the guys who call other people snowflakes 24-7. These are the guys who go after the libs for being triggered. These are the guys who make fun of safe spaces. It sounds like this guy needs a safe space for masks. So, listen, it's, it's easy to dunk on this guy and, and have fun with it. But the fact of the matter is this. I think all of you guys already know this and agree with this, but 
you shouldn't be offended. If somebody's outside and they're not wearing a mask, that's fine. They don't need to wear a mask. Everybody relax. If somebody's outside and they are wearing a mask, they're being overly cautious, but that's totally fine. That's totally fine. If somebody's indoors and they're not wearing a mask and they're vaccinated, that's fine. If somebody's indoors and they're wearing a mask and they're unvaccinated or vaccinated, I think that's fine. I think it's fine. I don't know why this became the ultimate like culture war issue, but I just want to be clear that everybody participating in it looks colossally stupid. And that goes from the hardcore liberal who might sneer at you walking down the street when you're not wearing a mask, right? That's happened. The hardcore liberals see anybody not wearing a mask, even outside, and they scoff at you. I think that person's an idiot. And I also think that Matt Walsh is a total idiot who's like anti-mask as a matter of principle and who is, finds it disgraceful, arrogant, and offensive if you wear a mask. Everybody should try to be safe. Everybody should try to use their common sense. And everybody should also try to mind your own business and don't be extreme. Like, if I see somebody wearing a mask or not wearing a mask in the middle of a pandemic, vaccinated or not vaccinated, it's like, okay, whatever, whatever. But a lot of people are taking these incredibly hard line positions and they just look goofy and they just look silly. And honestly, Looking back at a tweet like this in retrospect from the future, and this guy being considered an intellectual on the right, kind of embarrassing for the right. I mean, this guy saying stuff like this, it's like they're proudly wearing their anti-intellectualism, you know, and it's just sad. I just sort of feel bad for this guy who's 100% caught in the culture war and stuck and He's like brainwashed by it to the point where he says deranged stuff like this. Again, my general takeaway is if somebody's outside and they're wearing a mask or not, whatever, it's fine. That's totally cool. If somebody's inside, the only ones who shouldn't be wearing masks inside are vaccinated people. Everybody else should probably wear it inside, especially if you're close to people. But that's it. You know, that's it. I'm not... I'm not going to become some sort of militant weirdo obsessed with this issue and berating people. But here we are, Matt Walsh. Apparently that's all he has left. Okay. So Fox News um, is weighing in on what's happening with the economy, and they're going to let the mask slip here again. They're going to let the mask slip here again with just how anti-worker and anti-regular person they are. Take a look. Business owners disagreeing with President Biden and saying those extra federal jobless benefits are indeed keeping a lot of folks from taking work. That's why more and more states are ending the benefits, including Montana. And the Republican senator from that state joins me now. Steve Daines is also co-sponsoring a bill to stop the extended benefits across the country. Senator, good to see you. Uh, You know, there are 18 states now that have, have joined Montana. 
I believe they're all Republican. Is this coming down to a partisan divide? Well, sadly, it is. It really should be uh, more about common sense. Dave, the bottom line is this. The government is paying more money for people to stay at home than to go to work. And people take a look at the benefits to make a logical conclusion, and they stay home. This is a labor crisis, not a job crisis. My wife and I were in my pickup here last week. We were drove by a small business in Montana, and there were balloons everywhere around the business. It looked like a, a car sale, but they weren't selling cars. They had tents set up. I thought it was a promotion. They're trying to sell something. It was a hiring fair. They're trying to find people. Amazing. So anytime you're paying about $17 an hour, the current benefit with the state plus this generous federal benefit, it's about $17 an hour to stay home. And I'm thankful for these Republican governors like Greg Gianforte in Montana. He led the way 10 days ago. He said we're going to do two things. We're going to stop this additional $300 a week federal unemployment benefit, plus we're going to pay a $1,200 hiring bonus if you go back to work. Because he knows, he's a business guy, that people need paychecks, not government checks. Here's what happened. We have a small business in Montana that just told me a couple days ago that prior to Governor Jim Forty's announcement, they were seeing about one application a week for all these open positions. After he made the pronouncement, they got 60 applications. Wow. Well, that, that's great, although it's kind of weird that you have to pay people to come to work. It just shows you how distorted the whole economy has become. That last line says it all. The host says, you know, it's kind of weird. You have to pay people to come to work. Shows how distorted the entire economy has become. I've never seen a better admission that working for a wage is kind of similar to chattel slavery, right? I mean, you heard what he said. It's weird. You have to pay people to come to work. Wasn't it better when we could pay them really shitty and they effectively be forced to come to work? Or else, you know, you're threatening them with living in poverty forever? weird you have to pay people to come to work so there's a lot of things to say about this um they start the segment by saying business owners are disagreeing with biden and they're saying unemployment benefits are keeping people from working it says a lot that the the demographic that fox news cares about the most is business owners doesn't it, it says a lot not the workers business owners are saying x y and z um then you have a republican who's on tv bragging senator steve daines he's proposing a bill to cut unemployment benefits and he's on tv bragging about this like well i'm doing such a great job i i'm on top of it i'm looking out for the american people i want to cut the amount of money that they get you're not supposed to brag about this this is a wide open lane for the democrats you should be hammering the republicans over this because they're bragging about giving people less money and what's happening here is They're admitting they want to force people into a miserable job that they don't want to be at. That's the admission. That's what they're giving away. I mean, they may as well have it in a a bright, flashing light. I want to force you into a miserable job that you don't want to be at. So what's happening is this. Yes, some people are finally getting a taste of financial freedom. There um, There were the trial runs, the studies in universal basic income, and um, people were given $500 a month. This was in Stockton, California, 
And the results were overwhelming that the money always went to the things that it's responsible for them to go to. So it went for food. It went to pay the light bill. It went to things that are necessities. It was less than 5% of the money went to like, you know, went to alcohol or gambling or, or things like that, entertainment. So in those programs, what we learn is, turns out poor people just need a little bit of money and then they make the right decisions. And also we found that some people took that money, were able to get a day off of work and then find a new better job. They weren't able to take a day off of work. They couldn't afford taking a day off of work to try to find a new and better job. But with that $500 extra a month, that's what happened. That's what they did. So that's what we learned about universal basic income. And what's happening here is people are getting a taste of financial freedom and they're reevaluating life decisions. And so it's not like everybody's sitting at home on the couch just being lazy and that's the end of the conversation. No, the people who are getting this money are now able to take a little bit of time to determine what do I really want to do? How do I spend my time? What kind of a job do I want? And how would I go about getting such a job? So on and so forth. So people are finally getting a, a taste of financial freedom so they can make their own decisions. This is nothing but an increase in freedom. And Fox News and Republican politicians hate it. They hate it. Well, listen, there's a very easy way to change that scenario. Raise wages. Pay people more to get to work, and then they'll get to work. You have to incentivize them going to work. They don't want to do that. They want to punish people. That's what they want to do. Cut their unemployment benefits, threaten them with poverty, do that again, because that was working so well before. So in other words, they liked the system where people were, for, were forced into a miserable job that they don't want to be at. They like that system. They prefer that system. They're trying to get back to that system. Well, no, that's not the way forward. First of all, it's a good thing that all these people got this money. It's a fantastic thing. I want them to get that money. But beyond that, if you want to try to get people back to work, either have the businesses raise their wages or you subsidize them. So, you, again, you incentivize it in a different way. Either the private businesses can incentivize it on their own by raising wages or the government can come up with some sort of program where they do have a hiring bonus or whatever it is for people or they do subsidize wages or something like that. But that's the answer. The answer is not just cut the unemployment benefits. Screw people. Take away that taste of financial freedom. Force them back into a miserable job that they don't want to be at. That's not the answer. But again, I find this admission really wild, that they're just saying it out loud. By the way, what you're saying appeals to nobody. It appeals to nobody. You're telling people, I want you to be miserable and at a job you don't want to be at. You're telling people you want to take away their financial freedom. You literally said, it's weird. You have to pay people to come to work. Wasn't it better when you could like, pay them less than a living wage and force them? That's effectively what they're saying. So the Democrat, if the Democrats can't run against this, they're more than useless because this is the Republicans handing the Democrats an election. Because the Democrats are saying, we like it when regular people get money, and the Republicans are like, we fucking hate that. If you let the we fucking hate that people beat you, I have no words for you. All right, next. So there's this big dialogue happening right now in mainstream media um, on all the networks, actually, about how, man, 
are Americans just really, really lazy? Is that what's happening? Because we have a labor crisis in this country now. Isn't that terrible? And um, you're seeing people admit some bonkers things in the midst of this conversation. So Michael Smearconish, one of the most boring men alive and a CNN host, him and Wolf Blitzer have a boring off every year to see who is more boring and who can put more people to sleep. Well, uh, Smearconish did a segment titled, Is the American Work Ethic Dying? Let's see what he had to say. Is everybody still working for the weekend? I'm Michael Smirconish in Philadelphia. Here's a sign of aging. You start telling stories about all the menial jobs you held when you were a teenager. For me, those tales include working as an ice cream parlor dishwasher, McDonald's maintenance man, flower delivery person, and painter of street address numbers on curbs. And often such a list is followed by a derisive comment about today's youth and or the country's work ethic. Only now this perennial right of griping has gained new resonance. Fierce debate has overtaken the country as to whether America's work ethic is dying. Daniel Henninger asked such a question in his Thursday column for the Wall Street Journal. His inquiry came on the heels of a recent report that showed a gain of only 266,000 jobs last month and an uptick in the unemployment rate to 6.1%. Here's another sign of the times. Near me, a Wawa, advertising an $800 signing bonus for new hires who are vaccinated. Many small business owners, they claim they can't find employees, and they point to competition they face from the government's offer of enhanced unemployment benefits, which had been $600 per week and are now $300 per week on top of normal state unemployment benefits which the Labor Department says averaged $318. Henninger wrote, quote, it's now clear that Mr. Biden and the left expect these outlays effectively to raise the minimum wage by forcing employers to compete with Uncle Sam's money. Still, it's impossible not to be struck by how many employers say that former and prospective employees after a year of forced unemployment simply will not work. Several state governors agree. So far, 16 GOP-led states have announced plans to cut benefits. They include Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Georgia, Idaho, Iowa, Montana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Ohio, South Dakota, South Carolina, Tennessee, Utah, and Wyoming. Georgia just joined that list to end its participation in the federal government's COVID-19 unemployment insurance program effective June 26th. That means that according to analysis done by the Washington Post, 557,000 unemployed in these states will see their weekly benefits diminish by $300. A second group of 863,000 who just obtained aid for the first time under a second stimulus program will lose all of their benefits. A final group of about 513,000 workers who collect traditional unemployment benefits each week similarly may have their assistance reduced to zero. Now, not everybody thinks the unemployment rate is attributable to employers who are struggling to hire because the government is paying people to stay home. The president has said that the enhanced benefits have made no measurable impact on the worker shortage. This week, he reinforced that individuals receiving benefits who are offered a suitable job are obligated to take it and called upon the Department of Labor to reinstate requirements that were eased last year requiring recipients to search for work. 35 states have either already reinstated requirements or have announced a date to do so that requires anybody receiving unemployment benefits provide proof they're searching for work. 
Some see the recent jobs picture as an overdue reckoning for low wages, a real-world response to the failure of Congress to pass a $15 federal minimum wage. This response from Twitter was one of many that I've received that made this point. Work ethic isn't dying. People are wising up to the fact that corporate America would rather pay you so little that you have to be on food stamps rather than a living wage. If you make more per week with unemployment insurance and $300 supplemental, something's wrong. Still others point to pandemic-related factors such as a lack of childcare exacerbated by closed schools and concerns over safety in the workplace. So is the American work ethic dying? Or are the wages of work being reimagined? So um, this, this segment got a lot of dislikes. And again, the title was, Is the American Work Ethic Dying? And I love the comments. Smirkanish got absolutely smirkanished in the comments. So let me read some of these for you. Lisa Negra says, these multi-million dollar companies complain about paying higher wages yet make million dollar donations to politicians, needless commercials with already rich athletes and sporting teams while their materials and products are made in sweatshops at low costs. Um, somebody else says, the people who do, not, who do know actual lab- labor are discussing if we're too lazy. Gaslit USA. Another, another person says, our work ethic isn't dying, our tolerance for being treated like crap is. Somebody says, it's not just a reckoning for low wages, it's also a response to employers just not caring about their employees. They're just cogs in the machine. Doesn't inspire loyalty or desire to work. Somebody says, no, our work ethic isn't dying. The requirements to work are continually increasing and have been for decades now. And to put it bluntly, the output doesn't justify the input any longer by a magnitude. I can keep going. Basically, all of these comments are like this. More like the American worker is sick of busting their humps to not even make a living wage. Somebody says, if by work ethic you mean working yourself to death and still not making it, then yes. Smirkanish fails to mention that America's biggest companies like Walmart and Amazon flourished during the pandemic and put thousands of people out of work. It goes on and on. I mean, I could read these all day. Um, Listen, the bottom line is this. With the unemployment benefits, the child tax credit, um, the stimulus payment, we're at a point where people have gotten a little bit, uh, have gotten a little taste of financial freedom for the first time in their lives, and they're reevaluating. They're looking around and they're determining, what do I actually want to do? What do I want to do with my life? What would make me happy? What job would be something that wouldn't even feel like a job that I'd wake up and be, you know? over the moon to just go and do whatever the thing is. And I think it's a phenomenal thing that some people are finally asking themselves that question. They're finally evaluating their life in a way that maybe they should have evaluated it in college. And um, so I think that's a positive thing. Now, by the way, it's also being overstated too, because the unemployment rate is about 6%. So the idea that everybody gave up working, oh my God, this is crazy. And even if you do the, what is it called, the U6 unemployment rate? So that, which is more like the actual unemployment rate, it's about 12 or 13%. So that means, again, nearly 9 out of 10 people are working. This idea that everybody's just giving up, bro, this is fucking crazy. That's not really true. But to the extent that it is true that some people are reevaluating, I say, good. That's a good thing. So 
the crazy thing is mainstream media has admitted that they kind of want to force you into a miserable job where you don't want to be. I mean, that's the gist of this Smear Khanish segment. That's the gist of the Fox News segment that we showed you. They really just want to force people into miserable jobs that don't pay well. And, and you see Republicans acting on that, by the way. Senator Steve Daines proposed a bill to cut unemployment benefits. You have all the Republican governors in these states cutting unemployment benefits. So their reaction to this, their response to this, is not to raise wages, but to just cut off the help people are getting now and take away that little taste of financial freedom that people got. I think that says a lot, man. I think that says a lot. And it shows how the system isn't really made to maximize human potential and meaning and purpose and happiness. You're made to do that for the system. So in other words, you are just a a cog in, in the machine. That's it. That's what you are. And you have to, like, fit yourself arbitrarily into this giant convoluted system for the good of the system, as opposed to the system existing for the good of you. And I think that's unacceptable. I do. I, I like the fact that people are reevaluating their life and work. I like the fact people are getting a little taste of financial freedom. I like the fact that you're not forced into a miserable job you don't want to be at. I like that. And um, so I, I think we should do a UBI. But now you know, if we ever were to do a UBI, whatever the unemployment, even if the unemployment rate was 3%, they would fearmonger over that 3% and say, oh my God, there's a work shortage, there's a labor shortage, how do we force people back to work? And I also like the idea that um, Smear Khanish is like fearmongering over the fact that the Wawa is paying a bonus for people who work. Why is that a bad thing? You should be happy. Oh great, they're going to pay people more to work. Wonderful, that's great. But no, they say like, ooh, isn't this a bad sign? No, it's not. It's only a bad sign if your primary concern is for the business owners. It's for the capital class. And of course, their concerns usually are that. So anyway, man, this is wild to see, but they are incredibly hostile to your average American, to regular people. And I think these kinds of segments prove it. Okay, next. Sean Hannity and Maria Bartiromo um, are just lying about Biden's economy and saying insane things that are untrue. Let's watch, and then I'll break it down. Uh, I'm looking at inflation. I'm looking at this gas hack shutdown. But even prior to that, gas prices are going up. And here's my overall question. Joe Biden's been saying, Americans, if you make over $400,000 a year, you're not going to be paying taxes. Okay. Isn't all of this a tax on everybody? Because every consumer good, when you pay more for fuel and you have inflation, we're going to be paying dramatically higher prices for everything we consume. Am I wrong? No, Sean, you're not wrong. It is great to be with you tonight. You are spot on. We are looking at inflation on so many products. Take the price of lumber. It is up 77% year-to-date. The price of corn up 50% year-to-date. We learned in school that inflation is 
too many dollars chasing too few goods. That was the definition we learned about in school. When you start throwing money around, another $4 trillion going toward the economy, that is going to lift prices, and that is exactly what we're seeing. Probably the best move for Joe Biden would have been to just stay out of the way, leave the economy as is, given the fact that the Federal Reserve has kept interest rates at rock-bottom levels, President Trump put in a tax cut plan in 2017, and all of this together truly moved the needle on economic growth. We have expectations for the economy in 2021 of growth of up to 9%. All President Biden needed to do was not mess that up, get out of the way. Instead, he's throwing a lot of money at this economy, creating inflation, and you're actually seeing because of this lockdown that continues to persist, even with the no mask mandate now, people do not want to go to work. You just mentioned all of those states. 16 states at least have said, we don't want this $300 additional unemployment benefits. We're getting rid of it now. We need to start normalizing. Unfortunately, I'm looking at all of these policies, Sean, and I'm having a really hard time finding any policy out of this administration that's actually been good for the American people. Okay, so let's break, break down basically everything they said there. Um, Hannity's argument is, hey, Biden said he's not going to raise taxes on anybody making under $400,000 a year. But isn't the inflation that we're seeing a tax on everybody who makes under 400000 a year? That's his argument. Um, here's why that's complete and utter bullshit. Inflation was about 4%. Guess what? Last year, we had a little bit of deflation. And so inflation being at 4% just gets us to where we would have been at had we not had deflation last year. So this is much ado about nothing, ladies and gentlemen. Much ado about nothing. And they are so quick to try to say we're going to have, like, hyperinflation and uh, Biden is Jimmy Carter 2.0. It's going to be the gas shortage because of that pipeline, even though that had nothing to do with, with Biden. That was a private pipeline, private infrastructure. It had nothing to do with Joe Biden. And it's back up and running and whatever. Bottom line is they're desperately trying to argue he is going to raise taxes on regular people. And their argument is, well, the inflation is basically a tax on regular people, even though inflation is exactly where it's supposed to be at had we not had deflation the year before. Okay, next. Um, they talk about, well, the supply chain. See, all these problems in the supply chain, and you, you have the, the price. Some prices are out of whack, like lumber, for example. You have to go a case-by-case basis to look at each individual thing that they're saying has price issues. You have to look at each one and determine, well, what is it in this particular market that's leading to that? But generally speaking, a lot of the pricing issues, insofar as they exist, it's because of COVID, because this COVID has fucked up the supply chain, and it's been like that for quite a while, you know? So, duh, like when you have a global pandemic, some things are going to be affected. Even when things get relatively back to some semblance of normal, some things are going to be affected. Um, then we have the argument from Bartiromo where she says, well, Biden's best move would have been to stay out of the way. Here's why that argument is ridiculous. And in a way, she's actually contradicting herself. Trump didn't stay out of the way at all. Trump had COVID relief bills. Trump even did stimulus payments. Trump did the CARES Act, which was bigger, I think, than Biden's relief bill. And by the way, most of the CARES Act shit was terrible. It was just giving money to corporations. So, 
She says, well, Biden's best move would have been to stay out of the way. She never said that under Trump, and Trump passed COVID relief bills. Trump was for stimulus payments. So why are the relief bills okay when Trump does it, but it's not good when Biden does it? That doesn't make sense. That makes absolutely no sense. Unless you say, oh, well, you know, the problem was we should have stopped right after the Trump ones. Trump himself called for $2,000 checks. And Biden did the 1400 When you add the 1400 plus the 600 Trump approved, that would be a total of 2000 So Trump himself doesn't even agree with your entire argument. Oh, some of the best, the best move that Biden could have done would be just to stay out of the way. I mean, that's utter nonsense. Um, and by the way, if Biden had stayed out of the way, for example, I think our last jobs report, we would have lost like a million jobs. Instead, we gained like 220,000 or something like that. And they're saying, oh, my God, this is a terrible jobs report. Had we not had the recent round of stimulus, we probably would have lost like a million jobs. And then they'd be attacking Biden for not doing enough. So he can't win because these people are complete partisan hacks. Um, and then the final point is the one that I've made in a number of previous segments, which is there go, people don't want to get back to work. Okay, unemployment rate is 6%. It's 6%. So this idea that like, oh my God, are Americans just now lazy? What's going on? Is Biden making them lazy or something? I mean, the actual unemployment rate is probably like 12%, but you have almost 9 out of 10 people who are working. So it's like people just don't want to go to work. That's not true. But even to the extent it is true, because some people got unemployment, child tax credit, um, the stimulus payment, those people are reevaluating their life decisions and thinking of another job, thinking of what they want to do with the rest of their time in their life. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. But they just attack, 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 attack. They're complete hacks. Biden could do something that's exactly like Trump would do, and they'd still attack Biden. Because that's what they do. That's, how, that's what they view their jobs as. They're, my job is to be the attack dog against the Democrats and to defend the Republicans. And, but they can't even come up with good arguments for it. They look ridiculous. Why was nobody saying anything worried about inflation when Trump was doing the massive relief bills, but when Biden does the same ones, all of a sudden, oh, my God, inflation. They are full of shit. They're full of shit. They don't know what they're talking about. And um, it really is pathetic, and I can't believe anybody watches them and thinks they make sense. Okay, next. Ted Cruz, the smarmiest man on the planet, um, he's such a hack that he loves to play these got ya political games with people. You know, I feel like he's, he's buddy-buddy with, like, Steven Crowder, and he's got that same sort of political mindset where everything is just partisan hackery, everything is, like, stupid gotchas. And uh, so what happened was, He's in this committee hearing with John Ossoff on the issue of money and politics. And um, he tries to corner Ossoff and, and own him, but it doesn't work out too well for old Teddy. Congress has the constitutional authority and the right to force organizations like Planned Parenthood, to force organizations like the Sierra Club, to disclose their voters against their wishes. Both of those organizations engage in active electioneering. I'd be willing to guess both of those organizations supported the senator from Georgia's campaign. Uh, And yet I believe they have a constitutional right not to have their donors forcibly made public by the federal government. Does the senator from Georgia believe they have that right? or, or, Or instead, does the senator from Georgia believe the federal government can and should force 
Planned Parenthood and Sierra Club to involuntarily disclose their donors? I happily answer the question because my view is a principled one without regard to the political affiliation or ideology of the entity we're discussing. And my view is that organizations which engage in electioneering communications, organizations that are running television ads and paid digital ads for the express purpose of influencing public opinion to influence elections, should have to disclose who's funding them, regardless of whether they're on the left, the right, the center, or otherwise. And the Supreme Court has explicitly disagreed with you. Well, that's why we are. That's why we're here today. That was awesome. So Ted Cruz is a smarmy little Weasley prick trying to play got you there. And you heard what he said to him. He's basically saying, like, well, I guess that when it's left-wing groups, you don't want them to disclose the donors. But when it's right-wing groups, you want them to disclose the donors. Me, I'm Cruz. Me. And John Ossoff is like, no, I have a principled view that we need transparency when it comes to the money involved in our political system. So I think everybody should have to disclose who's funding these groups because these groups are impacting politicians and politics. And you want to know who's actually doing that. And what does Ted Cruz do? By the way, he wasn't expecting that answer because Ted Cruz is a weasel. And uh, so he goes right to, well, the Supreme Court disagrees with you. Me. So who gives a fuck? You disagree with the Supreme Court on Roe versus Wade. Is that supposed to be like a gotcha? Is that supposed to be like, nah, gotcha. Why? Why do you think that's a gotcha? There's no gotcha there. Of course you could disagree with the Supreme Court. And by the way, if you read any of the rulings that the Supreme Court has had on the various money in politics cases, you'll understand is probably some of their dumbest work, along with like Plessy versus Ferguson probably some of their dumbest work. You know, you have people almost literally making the argument that money equals speech. And not only is donating to politicians not corruption, they say it's not even the appearance of corruption, which is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Because of course it's the appearance of it, and of course it's corruption. You give money to politicians, they're going to do your bidding. They're more likely to do your bidding than they are to do their constituents' bidding. That's the point. That's the point. So, of course, Ted Cruz would think he's He's owning Ossoff, and Ossoff didn't even break a sweat and slapped his ass down. I mean, and by the way, just so you know, Ted Cruz is principled in the other direction on this issue. He's principled on the side of, I'm pro-corruption. Now, he pretends that, like, donating when it comes to politics is just free speech. In fact, I think he's written articles that argue that. Um, but, yeah, he's just on the side of corruption. So, yes, people should be able to spend whatever they want to spend in politics, whether it's groups, whether it's individual campaigns, whether it's individual politicians, whatever it might be, political parties. People should be able to spend whatever they want, and there should be no disclosing of who's giving money to who because he thinks that there's some privacy rights on that front or whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, what kind of a system does Ted Cruz set up? One where politicians are completely bought and owned by billionaires and corporations and they do their bidding. And he thinks that's dandy and that's a good thing. Ossoff's view, or actually I should be clear, this is my view. I don't know what his view is. He might be one of the people who says, I'm in favor of the money in politics, but there should be rules and transparency. My view is we shouldn't even have money in politics. We should have clean elections as a matter of law. Clean elections means publicly financed elections, means All the other political spending is illegal and can't happen and can't be done, and that's it. So that's my view. A lot of Democrats say, yeah, 
we can have money in politics, but it should be regulated a little bit, and you should have full transparency. My view is just no money in politics. Just publicly, publicly finance all elections, and all these single-issue groups shouldn't exist. They shouldn't exist. So, um, but obviously, Ossoff's view is more rational than, than Ted Cruz's view. He just wants wild, wild west corruption, no transparency, no rules, no anything. And Ossoff's like, well, at least you have to be transparent about who's funding these various groups. At least we have to know that. Ted Cruz is such a hack, man. That, I just want to be clear. That is, without a doubt, the open legal bribery position, the pro-corruption position. And not only that, but also like zero transparency along with the corruption. I don't want you to know who's buying me and influencing my votes. That's effectively what Ted Cruz's position is. And he believes it so thoroughly and so strongly that he's willing to try to do a gotcha with somebody who's obviously better on this issue and much more intelligent than him. So that's what happens when you're drunk on Steven Crowder. You're, you're making these arguments in your own little shitty far right-wing bubble, and they're definitely, definitely not landing with regular people. Okay, next. So Canada did an interesting study. They call it the New Leaf Project. And the idea was, hey, what would happen if we give homeless people $7,500? What would happen if you give people without homes, people who are living in extreme poverty, more money? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? What's going to happen? Now, I mean, I'm willing to guess it'd be a good thing because poor people are lacking money. So if you give them money, it probably helps in a variety of different ways. So um, let me tell you, this is in Vox here. This is some of what they say. The study conducted by the Charity Foundations for Social Change in partnership with the University of British Columbia was fairly simple. It identified 50 people in the Vancouver area who had become homeless in the past two years. In spring 2018, it gave them each one lump sum of $7,500 in Canadian dollars, and it told them to do whatever they wanted with the cash. At first... I thought it was a little far-fetched. Too good to be true, Ray said. I went with one of the program representatives to a bank, and we opened up a bank account for me. Even after the money was there, it took me a week for it to sink in. Over the next year, the study followed up with the recipients periodically, asking how they were spending the money and what was happening in their lives. Because they were participating in a randomized, controlled trial, their outcomes were, com- were compared to those of a control group, 65 homeless people who didn't receive any cash. Both cash recipients and people in the control group got access to workshops and coaching focused on developing life skills and plans. The results? The people who received cash transfers moved into stable housing faster and saved enough money to maintain financial security over the, over the year of follow-up. They decreased spending on drugs, tobacco, and alcohol by 39% on average and increased spending on food, clothes, and rent according to self-reports. That's amazing. Now we have more information on it. Giving out the cash transfers in the Vancouver area uh, actually saved broader society money. Enabling 50 people to move into housing faster saved the shelter system $8,100 per person over the year for total savings of $405,000. That's more than the value of the cash transfers, which means the transfers pay for themselves. This is like another study we discussed on the show. Um, It saves taxpayers money if you just put a roof over homeless people's heads. If you give them one of those little, you know, those like micro houses, that actually saves money in the long run to the taxpayer, even if the taxpayer pays for that house up front. 
because, you know, they end up, the homeless folks end up using a lot more government resources when they're not housed. And so we're learning more here. Hey, if you give homeless people some money, if you give them a roof over their head, it turns out the results are swell. The results are fantastic. You reduce the homeless population and you give people some financial security and they use that as a springboard for the rest of their lives. I mean, listen, with some people who are homeless, there are deeper issues at play, whether it's addiction issues, whether it's um, mental health issues, and those people need specialized help. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But by and large, when you give these people money, the studies are clear. Now we know. 39% cut in spending to tobacco, drugs, alcohol, and things of that nature. And a lot of this money goes towards regular schmegular bills that anybody else would be dealing with. So... I think that's what's so frustrating about following politics as closely as I do, is that oftentimes the answers really are incredibly simple, but we don't do them. And we also have a backlash when you do the right thing. A lot of people be like, I don't want that to happen, even though it's going to save me money in the long run. I don't like it. And so round and round we go with all these curable societal ills. They're curable. They're fixable. Or we can at the very least improve them drastically. And we don't do it. And part of the reason why in the U.S. is that, you know, there is no lobby for the homeless that's as powerful as, say, Wall Street or the military-industrial complex or Amazon or any of the special interest groups. And that's why politicians are representing those interests and not the interests of homeless folks. So that's it. There's the result of the study. Giving poor people, giving homeless people $7,500 has some positive effects. All right, next. This is something else. Vice News did this documentary. It's actually pretty interesting. Basically, they asked the question, is Trump the future of the Republican Party? And they went and they asked various Trump-supporting demographics if that's, if that's the case. Is Trump the future or not? Um, and what's interesting is that there were groups, demographic groups, that made interesting points. So one of the places they went was this border community that's overwhelmingly Hispanic that a lot, of, a lot of Hispanic people there voted for Trump and they wanted to get their reasons why. And it's interesting that uh, those people argued like, well, there really is a crisis. There's a lot of people crossing the border. I woke up one day and there were like hundreds of people in my backyard who had just crossed the border from Mexico. And so I want border security, number one, but I also want the cartel violence to go down, and I want these people to have jobs, and Trump said he'd bring us jobs, and so that's why I supported him. So in other words, there are some people who, are, who make cogent points as to why they like that. But then there's others who are ridiculous. And so I think the dumbest people in the documentary, the silliest people, were these white voters in Texas who were big-time Trump supporters. And Vice News went and talked to them. What's their reason or reasons for supporting Trump? This is great because these people are incredibly confused. They really have no idea why they support Trump, and they also contradict themselves. Watch. The rooftop Republicans in a group of MAGA faithful meet weekly at a Mexican restaurant in College Station, Texas. The focus of this group is to, is to concentrate on working from the school board up to the presidency and bringing true conservatism to bear. We are quite cool people. Both coasts look at us as a bunch of backwards freaks, and we're not. 
he's a retired judge, I've got a PhD, there are various other people around here who are educated, intelligent, we have a lot of places to do a lot of things, and we're tired of being left at. You look at the stuff that comes out of Hollywood, and you don't see a central white family or even a minor mixed family. There's three queers, two lesbians, thirteen Martians, and a bunch of... I went to the film, but I'm sure it's on Netflix. That's essentially who we are. So you feel condescended to by the media and just by the culture? Let me do a little experiment here. Give me a sentence. How you feel the media views you? They think we can't think for ourselves and we need to be told what to do. They're left all the way to the bank. Making money off of being condescending to you. We're, we're in competition and they have to shut us down through any means possible to promote their agenda. What is their agenda, do you think? Communism. I want to just be specific on that. Um, not liberalism, not social democracy. Liberalism is progressivism. is just another word for communism, and that's what's taken over that part of the world. Like liberalism in the sense of like Kennedy-style liberalism versus no. Swedish-style social democracy versus Soviet-style communism. I mean, you would have to with what they're doing. It's the same. The communist side of that. Correct. Okay. Correct. Is that a pretty uniform view here? Yeah. The third order attack is the body conquer. It just the language, the race, the economics, so you can even think it fine. It will drive away from us. My son is leaning towards liberal. How old is he? Um, 26. And when he and I talk about issues, and really um, dive down into them. We agree on almost everything. You do. Concerned about the elitist versus the people. You see, the enemy is the same thing. But what is it that politically divides you and your son? I think that he's listening more to mainstream media, believing the narrative that, that we are racist. You know, you're talking about Bernie Sanders. We're talking about unions. We're talking about Trump. Um, you know, what is it about him? And it, it all boils down to be the people. They don't want to be dismissed. Um, and they want a say so in what's going on. On the union issue, by the way, that's, a, that's I think one issue where I've seen Republicans uh, kind of move a little bit. I mean, the other day, Marco Rubio coming out pretty strongly against uh, Amazon. You would never, ever, in 40 years of being, being a, watching this stuff, see a Republican come out strongly in favor of a brand new union forming against a company like Amazon. I think it's about justice. He wants to push that crap on the rest of us, but he doesn't want it his company. Jeff Bezos has politics. Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Right. And Marco Rubio is putting the idea about the media and about the elites above a probably typical disdain or distrust of the media. So this is where it's from the people in those Amazon warehouses. So I go to the Ford factory in 1910. They beat the hell out of you, tied to the machines, said you're going to drop down and stuff. That's what's happening. And that's what the support is. The people point back against management and say, this thing's out of control. We've got to get it back to where we can live here. People used to pay Republicans as the party's ugly elite, of the wealthy, of the country club class, the Bushes. And now, Republicans using the language of the working class, of unions and the purpose of them. Republicans are not. Donald Trump is. Donald Trump is. Donald Trump, I say Republicans, he is bad as a Republican party right now, right? You sound pretty left-wing sometimes, right? But if you went back to sort of 2000, when there was the anti-WTO protests in 99 in Seattle, it's a, it's a kind of a popular thing that overlaps between left and right. Well, that's why this isn't about Democrat or Republican or anything like that. It's about the people versus the elite. Do Republicans care about spending anymore? The $1.9 trillion spending bill, the biggest in American history adjusted for inflation. Bobby Gardner, is that kind of to agree? I finally hear a little bit of dissent here. Yeah. Well, I would say dissent. He spends money freely, and I will give that on the things that matter. So defense spending, uh, infrastructure, border control, border security, and, and getting rid of the things that, that are, are sudden sounds. So that's what animates you now. Lower government, less spending, lower taxes. Mm -hmm. Credit.
to that vice host because he, at the end, that last thing that he asked them about really just ex- exposed the colossal contradiction of what these people are pushing. So let, let's run through all of it, okay? Um, they start out by saying, listen, the problem is the media looks down on us and we're tired of being looked down on. On that front, I was sympathetic up front because I'm like, that is true. The media looks down on you. I know what it's like for the media to look down on people. As somebody who's a lefty, who was a Bernie Sanders supporter, the media looks down on us. And, you know, actual lefties, populists on the left, people who really want to economically reform the country and end all the wars, they despise us. And, yes, the media does look down on a lot of Trump supporters. So I was sympathetic. But then they drove the point into a ditch because they went on to say, well, the media and the Democrats are pushing communism. And there is no difference between liberalism, progressivism, Swedish-style social democracy, and communism. It all comes down to communism, and they're, that's, they're all communists. Okay, see, I felt bad for the media looking down on you because I know what it's like that happens to us too. But then when you said, and by the way, all of my political enemies are communists, now you're just factually wrong and actually dumb in being wrong. Like, you're pathetically wrong, and now I want to make fun of you. Now you earn the mockery. I wasn't going to mock you for anything about you, but now when you make a point that's so demonstrably incorrect, I have nothing left for you but scorn. Oh, everybody who disagrees with me is a communist. All the Democrats are communists. The media are communists. These people don't even know what communism is. They can't give you a definition of communism. They can't give you a definition of socialism. They can't give you a definition of social democracy. They're not interested enough to actually learn about it and develop real opinions. And so it's just, I don't know, everybody who disagrees with me is a communist. See, now I'm not sympathetic. Then you have one of the people there who says, well, this is about the elites versus the people. The elites versus the people, but somebody else just said, oh, everybody who's my enemy is a communist. And so it's really not about the elites versus the people, because you're saying anybody on the left is not part of the people. It's only the people in so far as you define it. And you mean a certain segment of Republicans. You don't mean anybody that politically is not in agreement with you. So there's no elites versus people. There's no class solidarity among these people. So, again, there's a contradiction. Then I love the union part. They go on to talk about unions, and everybody sounds like a little bit sympathetic. Well, hold on. You, were just, you guys were just bashing communism, and now all of a sudden you're going to say some pro-union stuff. But then the mask is ripped off of the whole thing. And you see that these people are just confused. They don't even know why they support Trump. They don't even have an ideology. Uh, Because they go from saying, oh, yeah, we're populist, we believe in unions and stuff. And then the vice news host asks, well, what about this $1.9 trillion spending bill? You know, you say you're populist. See, it's a pretty big spending bill. So I guess you're cool with the big spending now if you're populist. You know, if you're saying pro-union stuff, I guess you're for the relief bills, right? The stimulus payments and whatnot. And what do they say? They're like, no. And he asked them, okay, so what are you for nowadays? Smaller government, less spending, and lower taxes? And they say, yes. Well, that's it. That's it. These people are just confused, and they contradict themselves. You are, by definition, not a populist if, You're in favor of, and I quote, smaller government, less spending, lower taxes. Smaller government, less spending, and lower taxes is the corporatist agenda. That's what it is. It's the corporatist agenda. It's deregulate, let the corporations run wild, let Wall Street run run wild, let the elites run wild, 
less spending means cut the social safety net, which again, if you're a populist, you by definition support the social safety net and you want to expand it. And of course, lower taxes means cutting taxes for the wealthy. Because Biden himself says, I'm not raising taxes on anybody who makes less than $400,000 a year. You would think they would support that, right? They don't support it. They like Trump's tax bill they brought up. Well, 83% of the benefits of that thing went to the top 1%. So, hello, hello. That is helping the elites. So it's not about the people versus the elites, because you contradicted yourself a thousand times. You say, oh, yeah, I'm one of the people, and I'm against the elites. Now let me materially support the policies that the elites want. Let me support the policies that help the elites and screw the people. And, oh, yeah, by the way, everybody who disagrees with me is a communist. So these, I have no sympathy for these kinds of Trump voters. I don't, because they don't even know what they want. They don't even know what they like. They don't even know what policy preferences they have. They espouse contradictory beliefs. And so you're not a populist. You're not, you know, against the elites and for the people. What they did is they latched onto a personality in Trump. And that's the main takeaway here, guys, is that for them, ultimately, it's more about the culture war than economic policy or any kind of policy. And Trump, feel, they feel like Trump represented them in the culture war. That, and it's just a reactionary worldview. Hey, I don't like Hollywood. I don't like the elites, the cultural elites. And so I like this guy who constantly fucks with the Hollywood types and the elites and the cultural elites. That's it. That's all they really care about. Because obviously the policy, they have no clue. They contradict themselves a thousand times. So I'm not sympathetic to that. You have to be better than that. You have to... You have to get outside of the narrow view of the culture war because the government, it, it, policy matters. Economics matters. Foreign policy and war matters. And they don't care about any of that stuff. They just latched onto a personality in Trump who makes them feel good. So it's a lot more about their fee-fees than any of the facts or any of the policies. And so I'm not sympathetic. So listen, it's sad, but this is what, who remains in Trump's, on Trump's side. They don't even know what they believe. So there's a reason why it's now bobbing out at about 32%, 35%. And um, it'll probably stay there because you can't – they go on to say, like, oh, yeah, we'd like to see Trump-style conservatives take over, um, you know, in D.C. Except Trump-like conservatives are already taking over D.C. They all agree on policy. Their conservatives all agree on policy. They're on the same fucking page. Liz Cheney and Donald Trump have been going at it for the past however many months. They voted with each other like 92% of the time. So you already have Trump-like conservatives there. It's just a regular conservative Republican. But see, that's the thing again. For them, it's more about the attitude and the culture war stuff and the no filter. That's what they want, which means nothing. Why have an attitude and a no filter approach if you're going to ultimately stand for nothing and contradict yourself every other sentence? There's no reason to, but they love that because they're not serious. And so, sorry, I don't feel bad. These people are confused, and they're contradictory, and um, it's embarrassing. Okay, next. What you're about to see here, this poll is absolutely incredible. This is, um, I believe it's Pew Research who did this one. Look at this. What, bo what bothers Americans about the federal tax system? So the first thing, some corporations don't pay their fair share. 59% of Americans are bothered by that a lot. 
are somewhat bothered by it. That's insane. That's over 70%. That's over 80%, actually. Almost over 80% of the American people are bothered that corporations don't pay their fair share. How about some wealthy people don't pay their fair share? Again, about the same thing. 80% say they're bothered by that either a lot or somewhat. Uh, The complexity of the tax system. Now, this is interesting because this is what conservatives say they care about. Only 47% of the country cares a lot about that. 35% care somewhat about that. Um, And then you have not much is 12%, not at all is 4%. And then here it really falls off a cliff. The amount you pay in taxes. Only 33% are a lot bothered by what they pay in taxes. 33% are somewhat bothered by what they pay. You have 24% not much bothered by it, or, and 10% not at all bothered about what they pay. And then you have some poor people don't pay their fair share. This is hilarious. This is a constant Republican talking point, that the poor actually don't pay their fair share in taxes. Only 13% are a lot bothered by the poor not paying a lot in taxes, and 19% are somewhat bothered by it. So that means 31% and 37% are not, at, not much or not at all bothered by it. So that's really, really interesting to me. So the biggest concern for people is corporations and the wealthy, that they are not paying their fair share. And guess what, guys? That it turns out it's actually true that they're not paying their fair share. Um, Apparently, the richest 1% hide 20% uh, of their income in taxes. In other words, I'll give you the actual number. Hold on one second. It is $175 billion in taxes each year are dodged by the top 1%. And they say that uh, rich tax avoidance could top $5 trillion over the next decade. So that, um, that says a lot, doesn't it? And they're the ones that have the army of lawyers. They're the ones that have um, the lobbyists in D.C. fighting on their behalf. They're the ones who find all the loopholes and deductions and ways to weasel out of paying. And it turns out the American people know that. We used to have a much higher top marginal tax rate in this country. It was as high as 90% or so under Eisenhower, a Republican. It was 70 or so percent under JFK. Uh, Now, that's just the nominal rate. The effective rate was a lot lower, like 45-ish percent. But that's still a lot more than we have now. The top marginal rate was about 45%. um, And now, that's been, ever since the Reagan era, it has always been under 40%, 40%, that top marginal rate. And it varies. Sometimes it's 32%, sometimes it's 35 sometimes it's 39 But um, it's low. And corporations used to pay a much higher percentage of the tax burden. Now that's fallen off a cliff. So people are concerned about the right things, and this is very, very popular to push for raising taxes on the rich. So it should be an all-out offensive by the Democrats and from Biden and he should make the Republicans pay political price, and he should make any Democrats who aren't in favor of it pay political price, like Manchin, for example. So get to work, because the people are on your side. That's for damn sure. All right, final story of the day. Here we go. Good news, everybody. When you poll young Republicans, it turns out Reaganism, the era of Reaganism, is dead So YouGov did a poll. Younger Republicans prefer to spend money on programs to create new jobs, even if taxes increase. 
increase. So 62% of all adults say spend money to create new jobs even if taxes increase. 89% of Democrats say do that. 51% of independents say do that. Now, overall, it's only 39% of Republicans that say you should do that. Republicans over 45, it's even less, 26%. But Republicans under 45 years old, 71% of them say spend money on programs to create new jobs even if taxes increase. So that tells me the era of big government is back. We had an era of big government under FDR. It went away with Reagan, and we've been in the neoliberal era since Reagan. But among the people, this view is completely breaking. People want and believe and know that the government has the capacity to do good. And listen, a lot of this might have to do with the fact that we've had a number of COVID relief bills. And in those bills, there was expanded child tax credits, increased unemployment insurance, uh, increased stimulus payments. Now, that's they're only one-time shots of adrenaline, so it's not great. But when people get a check from the government for 1400 bucks, they're like, oh, the government can do this? Well, I kind of like this. And so now people believe in the power of government again. And even Operation Warp Speed, the fact that we got the vaccine created, and now we're getting it out there as quick as possible. This is a trial running universal health care, Medicare for all. And it's worked phenomenally well, way better than just our private system. So people get a taste of it, and they go, oh, the government has the capacity to do good and they're reacting to that. And now even 71% of young Republicans say, Republicans under 45 say, yeah, use the government, create new jobs, even if taxes increase. There's no changing that among the American people. If anything, it's gonna get even more in that direction. It's gonna go even more in that direction. People are gonna support this kind of stuff more and more. So I think that's important. I think that says a lot, and I think that um, the Democrats should lean into this and should really make the Republicans pay a political price for not supporting such things. And if they don't, it's definitely their loss. All right, guys, I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.
Marshall that um, Friday the 28th, after we do the Pete Davis one, that way, um, and I was thinking rather than doing like a whole hour like we normally do, we can do like an hour with them, that way we could release that on June 1st as like our official announcement, and that's the one that we're not going to put behind the paywall. double up this week, we triple up next week, and then, oh, we have two weeks where we're off. That's not actually true. I'm pretty sure we have at least one person for those 